In my experience, there are two types of passages. On the one hand, there are passages that prompt a lot of questions. Complex grammatical decisions must be made. Linguistic decisions must be made. Interpretive decisions must be made. These passages pivot around words that have a wide range of meaning or unique words we can't find anywhere else. They revolve around obscure biblical allusions or reference some distant bit of ancient history or seem to nod in a direction we don't quite understand. Preaching these passages, I think, is actually fairly simple work because for hundreds of years, and in some cases thousands of years, men and women brighter than I am have been arguing the merits of this or that answer to this or that pressing question. And over time, the scholarly consensus typically gravitates towards what seems to be a clear resolution. And in commentaries, the best Christian minds not only help me understand the ongoing conversation, but help me find the right answer and tell me why that answer matters. Preaching in these cases is in many ways a matter of summary and application. It's not thoughtless work, but the agenda is at least laid out before you. On the other hand, there are passages that are, by all accounts, straightforward. Biblical scholars seem desperate to scrape together a question or two out of the passage because that's what they get paid for. But looming behind these questions is the perhaps embarrassing admission that there isn't really much to talk about, no pressing questions, no looming linguistic or historical or interpretive issues to navigate. You read the words, and there it is, plain and simple. These sorts of passages are in many ways harder to preach because working through the passage is merely a matter of reading it and maybe offering a few brief explanations. But after that work's done, the passage begins to work on you. You're given time to reflect. You're forced in these passages to meditate on the wonder of what you see clearly and plainly spread before you and to let it shift your thinking. You're forced to submit your life to it Not as a side dish, but as a main course. That's the sort of passage we're facing today. Today we're going to read one of the most famous stories in the Gospels. It's one of a few notable stories which nearly everyone within the margins of Western society is at least vaguely familiar with. The idiom, he walks on water, is one of the best known in the English language. And partly because this story is so well known, it's often misunderstood. So I want to read it together with you, and then I want to quickly, simply break it down. But after that, we're going to carefully dwell on what it means. Not just for our lives and our hearts and minds, but for our worship. Let's get into the text. Read with me Matthew 14, verse 22 to 33. Hold up your Bible when you're there. Matthew 14, verses 22 to 33. Good. The scene opens with Jesus' action. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him on the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. 
And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. Beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Before we begin, I want to make a point that I'm sure you'll think is patently obvious. But I'm highlighting this now because it's going to help us make a lot of important decisions down the road. Matthew is not Mark. Matthew is not Mark and he's not John. Matthew and Mark and John have different purposes for writing. And they're writing to different people and they're writing at different times. And yes, they're writing about the same moment. But when they do so, they nearly always focus on different aspects of the moment. And every scene they've chosen to include in their story and every scene they've chosen not to focus on in their story is arranged to support their purpose down to the very words they choose. One of the most frequent mistakes a reader of the Bible can make is to push the text aside in order to piece together some composite retelling of the moment behind the text. That's not your job as a reader of the Bible. Your job is to train your eyes steady on the text before you. Your job is to listen to what Matthew is telling you about this moment and to relate it to what he's told you before and to try and understand the developing argument of the book he's writing. But as soon as you set that text aside because you'd like to know more than what Matthew's decided to tell you, you've shifted the object of your study from the Word of God to a moment that happened a long time ago, which you don't really have access to. And the reason I'm bringing this up to you now is because you'll be tempted, as I was, to fill in the gaps in Matthew's story. And there are a lot of gaps. And those gaps prompt prompt a lot of questions. Like, why did Jesus send his disciples away? Or why did Jesus spend the evening alone in prayer? Or where were the disciples instructed to go? And where did they actually go instead? Or how could the disciples worship Jesus as the Son of God, yet seem to completely misunderstand his nature and his work later? Each one of those questions should naturally occur to you in your reading of Matthew. And each one of those questions is answered in another gospel account. But if you shift your attention away from Matthew's story to the story of Mark or John, to fill in those gaps, you're setting aside Matthew's choices. What to include, what scenes and characters to focus on, what language to use, and you're replacing them with yours. It's like grabbing a brush and painting broad, clumsy brush strokes over a Rembrandt because you don't like that there's nothing in the far left corner of the painting. Does this make sense? The reason I mention it first is because one of the first questions which naturally arises in this text is in the first verse. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Let's take a closer look. First, the language here is stronger than you might think. Just as soon as the crowds were fed, apparently Jesus made his disciples leave without him. That word made has the force of compulsion and urgency. The most natural reading is compelled And that's what Jesus is doing. In other words, they didn't have a choice in the matter. The master says they need to leave right now. And it should naturally occur to you to ask, why does Jesus, immediately after feeding these people, I mean, wouldn't you want to bask in it? 
he immediately demands that his disciples leave and that the crowds leave. The answer which we know from John is that the crowds were stirring. Murmurs were passed from person to person and the mob was rallying to take Jesus by force and declare him the king of Israel. But Matthew doesn't answer that question. He doesn't give us that information because it isn't the crowds he means for us to dwell on. The story isn't about the crowds, it's about Jesus. He means for our eyes to be trained on Jesus who sends away his best friends and dismisses 10,000 of his most enthusiastic fans in order to be alone, in order to be with the Father. He sends away his disciples and he sends away the crowds to pray. The text then reads, When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Let's talk for a moment about the timeline. We know that the meal began sometime in late afternoon because Matthew records his disciples telling Jesus, send the crowds away to go into the villages to buy food for themselves because the day is now over. And while we don't know quite how long the meal took, we know that sometime between late afternoon and evening, around dusk, Jesus sent his disciples away and the crowds so that by evening, is the language Matthew uses, he was alone. There's a few signals in the text, namely the grass the crowds sit on and the strong winds on the sea, that indicate this was the rainy season in ancient Palestine sometime in early spring. And if you follow all of those signals, you have sunset around 5.45 to 6 in the evening. And the reason I think that's worth mentioning is because Jesus didn't meet his disciples on the waters until the fourth watch of the night. That is, according to the Roman measure, between 3 and 6 a.m. So no matter how you slice it, Jesus prayed alone for hours on end. And the disciples fought the waves for hours on end. If they left before evening, they began rowing around 5. And they were rowing against a strong wind because they'd not made it halfway through the sea by 3 at the earliest. Now, at this point, a lot of discussion around this passage pivots around where they were going or triangulates positions on the coast with the information Mark left us in this gospel and reconciles his account to this one. But we're not going to do that because Matthew hasn't asked us to. Suffice it to say, they rode a long time. Matthew says, literally many stadia. Most scholars think that's about two and a half miles in around nine hours. I have a rower. I'm not, as you can clearly see, a very strong person, and I can row two and a half miles in about a half hour, a little less, little, little less than 45 minutes. Now, I don't know how much you've spent lately on a rower, but I'm pretty tapped out by about 45 minutes. And I'm not working against the wind or fighting for my life. I cannot imagine the state of exhaustion they must have felt. So please, we're always mocking the disciples. Have you, have you noticed this inclination? Like, what, what did Peter, Peter was such an idiot. Meanwhile, we're over here just being total idiots all the time. But whatever. Just give them a break. They've been rowing for nine hours. And then they look up and they see what appears to be a ghost. Okay? You would cry out too, I'm sure. 
The text describes a situation like this. In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. There isn't anything special about the language here. The only thing they've ever heard of that could walk across a body of water without sinking was a ghost. And seeing a ghost on the sea was a bad omen. If you're a sailor fighting against strong winds for nine hours, the gut response of these soldiers was to fear that the disembodied spirit of some poor soul lost at sea was coming to collect them. That death was near at hand. Jesus immediately calms their fears. He says, take heart. These words are now characteristic of Jesus. This is what he said to the paralyzed man who was carried to him by friends just before the words, your sins have been forgiven. And to the woman who trembled because she'd been caught touching the hem of his garment without his permission, only to learn from Jesus directly that her faith had saved her, that she'd been healed forever. The words, take heart in the ministry of Jesus, were like a balm of comfort to the broken. And he follows these words with a simple declaration, it is I. There's something you should know about these words. In ancient Greek, the phrase that we translate, it is I, wasn't the go-to phrase if you wanted to announce yourself. It wasn't the first gut. It wasn't the most normal thing to say in this moment. What makes these words unique in the ministry of Jesus, though, is how often he uses them to pull back the curtains. See, these words in Greek, ego I me, were the words that the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Scriptures, used when translating God's name, I am. And the force of these words was understood by Jewish communities who grew up reading the Exodus account. So to use these words in certain contexts was to blaspheme the name of God. For instance, when the Jews leveled the question, are you greater than our father Abraham? Which was clearly a softball because they were absolutely certain that he'd respond in the negative. He replied, before Abraham was, I am. Same words. And do you know what they did? They picked up stones. Because they knew what that meant. They understood exactly what Jesus was suggesting. Now in this case, we don't know whether Jesus was intending right here in this moment to say to his disciples that he is God. But it's crystal clear that he was intending to show his disciples that he is God. So I don't think it's too far off from the mark for readers to see these words and think, that's Yahweh. Because he is. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. There are perhaps no sweeter words. Jesus stood before them on the waters doing something that only God could do. God. The same God who had given Israel opportunity after opportunity, whose wrath had built and built. The same God who had 
cast his people out of the promised land, the God whose laws they'd broken every single day of their lives, suddenly they're seeing Jesus do what only God could do. They were afraid of a ghost. Has it occurred to you that, the, that meeting God at that moment should have instilled greater fear? A specter of sheer terror against the backdrop of their sin? Everything, everything we know about Israel, everything we know about the disciples, and everything we know about God means that when He shows up, you fall on your face and you cry out for mercy. But when Jesus arrives, he meets them in their fear and he responds with these words, Take heart. Do not be afraid. We'll return to this later. At this point, the story takes a turn that you might not expect. Peter, who is emerging as the most audacious of the disciples, cries out to Jesus. The text reads, Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. The English here is a bit vague, as the natural reading of the sentence seems to be something like a challenge. But the force of the Greek here might be better translated, since it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Peter wasn't questioning the veracity of Jesus' claims or challenging Jesus to prove his claim. And we shouldn't forget that Peter calls him Lord just before asking this question, which in this context seems to be loaded with at the very least messianic and perhaps even divine implications. He is, after all, walking on the water. What strikes me as odd is Peter's immediate desire to experience this miracle alongside Jesus. But maybe I shouldn't be surprised that Peter's first instinct is to take part. Jesus had already sent his disciples into the villages and towns of Israel, granting them the miraculous abilities that had defined his ministry. So it wouldn't be crazy to expect that if Jesus could do this, he might grant his disciples the ability to do it too. What happens when Peter's feet touch the water is fascinating and unexpected. The text reads, Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and he began to sink and cried out, Lord, save me. First, Jesus' response to his request is simple, something apparently equivalent to, sure, go ahead. It strikes me that Peter, whose youth and immaturity is on display here not for the last time, has interrupted a profound display of Jesus' power to seemingly experience something that seems like it would be a really cool experience, right? You have two things going on, one profoundly greater than the other, right? Maybe there are other more significant reasons to invite himself on the waters, but as far as I can see, I can't imagine otherwise. So I, hear, I see here Jesus showing himself to be God, Lord of the seas, and then Peter interrupts that magnificent display to shout something like, can I do it too? Right? And again, we encounter the perfect patience and the comforting peace of Jesus. Like a gentle father, he says, yeah, okay, come on, little guy. Right? And we're not sure how far he got, but sometime shortly after leaving the boat, Peter notices that the wind and the waves that have been beating them back for over nine hours haven't abated. And what confidence he had in Jesus' abilities to keep him safe is stifled by the fear he has 
of the storm. He begins to sink. In a moment of sheer panic, cries out, Lord, save me! Jesus is there immediately. He grabs him by the arm, helps him back into the boat, issues a soft rebuke, and calms the storm. The text reads, Jesus immediately reached, his hand, reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when he got into the boat, the wind ceased. At a whim, without a second thought or a dramatic display of any kind, Jesus wills the wind to cease. And as they sat exhausted on the still waters, all doubt that this was the living, breathing, walking God to whom all creation submits were dispelled in the minds of his disciples. Text reads, and those in the boat worshipped him, worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. If you know anything about the law of God, you know that this act of worship directed to anyone other than Yahweh himself earns capital punishment as the highest display of blasphemy. There is no ambiguity in this text. The worship of his disciples at this moment is a crystal clear admission that he is himself God. Son of God is not merely a messianic title here. We have before us a display, albeit passing, of open eyes and softened hearts seeing Jesus for who he is. And you might ask, just at this point, how the disciples could possibly recognize the deity of Christ here so early in his ministry, and yet doubt so consistently, falter so frequently, abandon him so quickly in the chapters to come. You might want to draw near to that dynamic. You might be tempted to flip to Mark, who focuses on how much the disciples didn't understand just right then. How they still operated in hardness of heart. And you might be tempted to turn to the last verses of Matthew when some of the disciples, even standing before the resurrected, ascending Christ, still harbor doubt in their hearts. But I'd encourage you not to do it. Because this story isn't about the disciples. This story is about Jesus. We need to draw nearer to it. We need to let it cast an impression on our conception of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. Anything less than that, anything less than making this passage a description of his nature and character, any distraction that shifts our attention from Jesus right now is less than what Matthew intended. This passage is about Jesus, and as far as I can tell, this passage teaches us three things about Jesus. First, Jesus is God. This is the most important impression cast by this story. I can think of a handful of ways Matthew teaches us this lesson. First, and most subtly, Matthew describes Jesus turning away from the glory of men to seek the fellowship of the Father. At every stage of his ministry, we find Jesus trading the very available glory of man to seek the presence of the Father in prayer. The Trinitarian fellowship that has characterized his nature for all eternity characterizes the rhythm of Jesus' life. He is the Son of God, and as such, he is drawn into fellowship with the Father at every stage. Turning away the crowd, sending away his disciples to be alone with the Father isn't merely an expression of kingdom values. It's an expression of his divine nature. You want to draw nearer to this dynamic? Do you want to understand what his prayers must have sounded like alone in those hills? 
Spend some time this week reading John 17. When Jesus prays, his entire frame of reference is Trinitarian. He's always referencing the glory he shared with the Father, the fellowship he shared with the Father, the unity he shares with the Father, because he is the Son of God. And I think perhaps the most subtle nod to that nature is in his intimate prayers in this passage. Second, Jesus is Lord of the seas. This is a role that only God carries in the Hebrew Scriptures. Asaph writes, Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. And Job cries out, God alone stretches out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. And Isaiah joins in chorus, Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. There are many amazing deeds that characterize the prophets of God, but not this one. Walking on water is an action ascribed to God alone. Third, Jesus delivers from the waters. If you don't know much about God and you want to understand who He is and how He relates to us, quickly, you should go to the Psalms first. The Psalms are like a field guide for the people of God. They teach us about us and about our situation and about how we should relate to God. But more than all that, they teach us who God is and what He's like and how He responds to us. And as the songs of the Psalter do this, they return again and again to a small handful of word pictures. On the one side of these word pictures is God. And on the other side of these word pictures is us. And one of the most poignant word pictures that punctuates the Psalms involves the terror of drowning in water. Water was a picture of death. As the Psalter does this, I'm sorry, I lost my, my, my place. One of the most poignant word pictures that punctuates the Psalms involves the terror of drowning in water. In this analogy, we're sinking, desperate for air, pulled into the depths without hope until God in His mercy extends His strong arm to save us from the troubled waters. Let me read you a few examples. Save me, O God, for the waters have come to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. Stretch out your hand from on high. Rescue me and deliver me from the many waters. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of the many waters. God saves his people as if from troubled waters. He reaches out his strong arm and he pulls them from the depths. When we're neck deep, God alone can draw us up. And so when Peter shouts, Lord, save me, you should be thinking about that word picture. When he stretches out his hand, when Jesus stretches out his hand and delivers Peter from the many waters, you should see God made flesh. You should see a parable of your redemption with Jesus at the center of it. And finally, Jesus is the Lord of the storms. The winds cease and the waters still. And that's an expression of his will. Such is the power of God alone. 
Throughout the story of the Scriptures, God alone exercises authority over the storm. Let me read you some examples. When He thunders, the waters in the heavens roar. He makes clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with the rain and brings out the wind from His storehouses. He makes the clouds His chariots and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes winds His messengers, flames of fire His servants. For He spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. They mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depths. In their peril, their courage melted away. They were at wit's end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and He brought them out of their distress. Listen, He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The the God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as King forever. When He walks on the water and when He stills the storm, the disciples, having grown up hearing the reading of the Scriptures, must have been thinking, there He is. There He is. That's the first thing this passage teaches about Jesus. The most important point that Matthew is making. It's implicit in his prayers and in his walking on water and in his authority over the seas. And it's explicit when his disciples worship him. Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. He has authority over all creation. And he stands ready to redeem his people in fulfillment of every promise in the Scriptures. That's all there in this story. The second thing this passage teaches us is that Jesus is merciful. From the moment he cries out, take heart, do not be afraid, to the moment he stills the storm, this this story is a portrait of the mercy and patience of Jesus. So many people want to make this story about Peter's faith, or lack thereof. So many want to hone in on the dynamics of Peter's relationship to Jesus, his fear of the storm, or the doubt that characterizes his sinking. And by way of that lens, we make this passage about ourselves about how we respond to difficult and scary moments, and about how fear of man and fear of pain and fear of the unknown can stifle doubt and take our eyes off of Jesus. And yeah, that's there in a way. There are secondary implications you can draw from this passage about faith and about fear, but I think to focus your attention there as a matter of first priority risks losing the most beautiful dynamic in this passage. And that's the breathtaking power of God responding to the frailty and faithlessness of man with patience and mercy and rescue. Jesus is God. I think secretly we still have some false dichotomy between the Father and the Son. The Father's the angry guy and the Son's the merciful, compassionate guy. Dispel that from your theological framework. It is heresy. Jesus is God. His relationship to His people has been punctuated from day one with their idolatry, their adultery, their faithlessness, and their wickedness. Jesus is God and He is holy. So when Jesus, instead of letting Peter drown in His faithlessness, instead immediately stretching His hands 
to, to draw him out of the water. You should see in that moment stunning mercy, a stunning expression of steadfast love, a stunning parable of the grace of God in Christ, and a foreshadow of the coming redemption of God's people. It's not an accident that so many of the Psalms represent the people of God drowning in their sin and represent God reaching down with a strong arm and drawing them out of the many waters. It's not an accident that that's the backdrop of this story. You should make that connection. You should see Jesus reaching down and pulling Peter out of the waters and you should see a parable. You should see that from the beginning, this is God's relationship to His people and it's coming to fruition. It's culminating in the sacrifice of Christ and by His strength, by His righteousness, redeeming His people forever. That's what you should see in this story. Jesus responds to the foolishness of Peter with a kind invitation. And he responds to the faithlessness of Peter with a gentle rebuke. He responds to the exhaustion of his disciples with peace and rest because Jesus is merciful and kind. That's your brother and that's your Lord and that's your King. He is compassionate and gentle. You should walk away from this passage with a vivid portrait of the patience and mercy of Jesus. The last thing Matthew intends to teach us in this passage doubles as the application of this sermon. We're often asking, how should this passage change the way I live? This passage answers that question seamlessly. You don't have to search for it. It's just right there. There aren't many moments in the Gospels when you can point (laughs) to Jesus' disciples and say, yes, that's it, they got it. Do that. Exactly what the disciples are doing. But this is one of those rare moments. Because when the disciples hear the comforting cries of Jesus, and when they see Him walking on water, when they experience His patience and mercy, when they see His Lordship over the storm, they respond in precisely the way you should respond to Him. Worship. Jesus is worthy of worship. He is God. Lord over the storms and seas, Redeemer of His people. He is powerful and patient. He is mighty and merciful. And when you encounter His power, and when you encounter His mercy, your response should look just like their response. Truly, you are the Son of God. They worship Jesus because He is worthy of worship. You may never see Jesus walking on water literally. You may never be rescued by his outstretched arm from the troubled waters, literally. But if you've been walking with Christ for any length of time and you've been paying attention, you've seen his power. He provides miraculously. He moves the hard hearts of men. He is there when we need him over and over and over again. And he responds to our foolishness and our faithlessness with breathtaking mercy, which is new every morning. He loves us. And he's walking with us patiently. And he's stretched his arm out to rescue us from our own consequences again and again. So you should worship him. Your life should be at every moment an expression of worship. You should stand in awe of his power and you should sing praises to his name. Your language should be the language of worship. 
the way you say thanks and the way you celebrate victories and the way you fight despair and the way you enjoy food should be worshipful. If Job, when he lost his children and everything that he owned, could worship God, then you by the Spirit of God can do so as well. Every moment, even the dark ones, should be punctuated with worship. We have nothing before us but grace on the other side of of the cross. He's met you in the midst of the storm walking on water. Because he's drawn you out of the depths. Because he's stilled the storm and given you peace. That's your story. And your response should look like theirs. So let's worship Jesus together because he's God and because he's merciful and because he's worthy. Amen? Amen. Amen.